And, you know, when you get in that vehicle and you shut the door and you can't move, fear starts setting in. Freak out ascitis comes along and uh, you just have to deal with it. The Progressive Project. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to the Progression Project podcast. I am your host, Eric Antonson, and today's guest is a good friend of mine and a very inspirational person, William Brunham. William, as you could probably tell from that little snippet intro at the beginning, does some pretty heavy stuff. He is a 26-year vet of the Navy SEALs, has just retired, um, led teams all over the world, 10 deployments, seven combat deployments, four in Iraq, three in Afghanistan, uh, led teams from four people to 400 in all environments around the world. Um, I have gotten to know William in the last few years. Uh, he emailed me after the Anders Ericsson podcast. He is doing a master's right now in strategic leadership and uh, listened to the Anders Ericsson podcast, and it, the themes hit uh, hit home with him, and he reached out, and we became friends. He came down to Costa Rica. He's a surfer, came down to Costa Rica, surfed with me, um, and I've wanted to get William on the show for a long time, so I'm super pumped that we finally got to sit down and do it, and this is the first in a few. We've only touched the surface of some of our deeper conversations, which I think would be fun to share with everyone, uh, but this is a good intro to who William is and some of his insights, things that he's learned over 26 years of service. His last few years in uh, the Navy were at headquarters where he was solving operational deficiencies um, through creating partnerships with industry, academia, and strategic funding organizations. So there would be an issue with uh, some sort of uh, need that the, that the special forces would have, and William would be the guy who would go out and figure out how to fill that need through innovation with other uh, U.S. corporations or, uh, I guess, other government organizations. So um, since retiring, which has just happened, he has started Nalu Strategic Solutions, which is a uh, consultancy where he is bringing the skill set um, from his 26 years uh, into the corporate world. So doing some with government organizations now, but then also starting to work with companies um, to solve problems, create strategies, and bring a different perspective to organizations. So that's something that I know that William will do. I, I touched on it at the very end of the podcast, but uh, in case you don't make it all the way there, I hope you do. But William came down to uh, the Blue Zone retreat that I run in Costa Rica, and it was amazing to watch how his influence on a group made everyone step up. When you have someone who doesn't complain, takes everything on, attacks every situation um, with just full uh, confidence and, and enthusiasm, everybody feels that, and then everybody else uh, tries to emulate that. And so having been around William and then a friend who's in JTF2 and then a couple of the other guys that, that I spend some time with, um, there are personality types, there are people that just by their mere presence bring everyone else up and along with them. Uh, William's one of those guys. If you have an organization that um, could use that, it would probably be a good phone call to make. So before we jump in, two quick sponsors. Uh, I touched on just a second ago, Blue Zone 
SUP, I'll retreat in Costa Rica. Uh, Chase Kosterlitz, who is a world-class phenom paddler, is down there running it for us since I'm back in the States now. He's doing an amazing job. Um, I know that we're booked up for the next month or two. Uh, we might have some availability February and March. Uh, it's an amazing experience if you surf or if you are new to surfing and you want to get into it. Uh, we focus on paddle surfing and world-class coaching in an amazing beautiful setting. And then my project for the last uh, couple years has been designing and shaping surfboards. So if you are still a surfer listening to this podcast, coming over from the paddleboard days, uh, check out portalsurfdesigns.com. I think you'll like what I'm doing. The feedback has been insane on the Phantom, the model I dropped a couple, um, a couple months ago. And so I think that you'll like that. So, all right, guys, let's jump into the show with William Brunham. William, thank you for being on the Progression Project podcast. How are you? Groovy, man. How are you doing? Excellent. Happy to be here. I know. We've been talking about doing this for a while. I'm, I'm extremely right? excited. So um, to get things started off, uh, you know, I mentioned this to you. I've been mulling this around for the last couple of days, and I mentioned it in, in messages a couple of days ago. I've, I've started to believe that life comes down to large inflection points, uh, big big moments where a decision happens, uh, your world changes in some way, or your worldview changes in some way. Um, and so I want to start there with you today. And, and just to give you some some time to think on that, I'll go through just a few of them from my life, and then we'll jump into yours. So if I was looking at this, my big inflection points would be uh, skateboarding for the first time, because it moved my mentality away from the rigid ball sports. It kind of got me thinking outside the box a little bit. Music a few years after that, uh, my first Costa Rica trip, which changed the way that I saw the way people in the States, or at least in my community lived. I realized that there were other ways where people seemed extremely happy to me, um, meeting my wife, moving to Costa Rica, and then having to move back from Costa Rica. And some of those are, are mindset changes and some of those are physical changes. But each one of those, if I were to kind of, kind of plot out my life path, would be significant events that changed the course of, um, you know, where I ended up. So using that idea, those inflection points ideas, um, can you guys kind of give us a, a rundown of, of what brought you from, you know, childhood to where you are and, and what you ended up becoming? Sure. Um, and that, that's kind of is a, is, a, is a good way to kind of sort of tell my, my life story. Um, I grew up in uh, Meridian, Mississippi, so there's there's not a whole lot that happens down there except for maybe hunting and fishing. Um, and uh, when I was 15, I was actually shot turkey hunting, and that that changed uh, a couple things in my mindset. Uh, eight, 18 years old, I joined the Navy because I wanted to become a Navy SEAL. Um, that didn't happen right away because of some decisions that I made um, in the Navy. Uh, so I had to go uh, move to Japan which kind of uh, talks a little bit about, you know, you going to Costa Rica and seeing how people uh, live a little bit differently than they do here in the States. Um, I was on a ship in Japan traveling around the world for two years, uh, eventually got to do what I wanted to do was to go to uh, go become a Navy SEAL, go to BUDS training. Uh, BUDS is basic underwater demolition slash SEALs. Um, uh from there, I uh, got married, had kids, uh, 
I think marriage was a small inflection. Kids is a much larger uh, uh, lifestyle change. Um, deployed several times to, uh, you know, pre 9 11 uh, to the European theater. Uh, and then post 9 11, um, seven deployments to uh, between Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, got divorced, remarried, had another child. Um, now I live in Hawaii, um, and I just retired from the military and that is a huge, uh, kind of inflection point that, uh, leads us to where we are today. And I think there was a, a trip to Costa Rica to, uh, surf with you, uh, in there somewhere <laughs> also. Uh, and that is, that is William and I's connection. I know, uh, we both share the passion for, for water and the ocean and surfing so we have a lot of commonality in, in that area and then very different lives in other, uh, in other ways. So it's, it's, he's a sounding board for me because he approaches problems in a very different way and, and questions in a very different way than I would given his, his background. So it's a good, good sounding board. We, we end up having great conversations. So let, let's start with those inflection points from the beginning. How does someone who is shot while hunting at 15 end up wanting to pursue a career where you get shot at? Did it make you feel like you're a superhuman? Did you walk away from that thinking you're invincible? Huh. Well, I, I kind of still do think I'm invincible sometimes. Uh, <laughs> I've seen although this now in that person, I've, dude. <laughs> <laughs> now that I'm getting older, I have uh, a little bit of a different perspective of it. Um, but I, you know, when I joined the Navy, when I wanted to be a SEAL, I didn't. Um, there were no wars really going on. It was, uh, I think the most recent war was, uh, the, the, uh, Gulf war one. Um, and that ended before I graduated high school. Uh, but it really, I think started when I was a boy scout, I was an Eagle scout and somewhere along, you know, the line of, of being a boy scout, I learned about, uh, Navy seals because I always liked, you know, sort of that commando lifestyle thought process anyway. Um, and that's kind of a lot of, what I did in Boy Scouts. Um, and, uh, someone told me about, you know, he knew a guy who was like, you know, in really good shape. He could, you know, exercise for hours on end without really breaking a sweat. And they jumped out of airplanes and they scuba dove underwater and they shot guns and they blew stuff up. And I thought that was, that's what I want to do when I grow up. So, um, in, you know, this was, you know, before there were books and movies and all the other hoopla that, uh, that is out there about my community now. Um, so I, I didn't really go into it thinking that, uh, I'm going to go into harm's way or people are going to shoot at me or, or anything like that. However, you know, it, it kind of was in the back of my mind, but, you know, as I started deploying to combat and, and was in, you know, different situations, um, that moved to the front of uh, the front of my mind where I thought, well, um, I've already been shot. So I think, uh, I should be good right, right about now. Um, however, when, you know, things start blowing up around you, um, I'm like, well, I've never been blown up before. Um, I'm, I'm less comfortable than I was, you know, a couple minutes ago. Um, but I, you know, I didn't really go into it. Um, thinking, uh, about, you know, being, being afraid of being shot. Um, and even while I was in it, I've, I, you know, still not really scared of being shot. There's fear for sure. But, uh, um, I just figured my odds were better than everyone else's. (laughs) 
I feel that from you sometimes when we're surfing too. <laughs> Play, playing the odds over here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, when you first joined uh, the Navy and you said that you wanted to be a SEAL, but then it, you took a detour there and ended up in Japan, what happened? So um, when, you, when you join the Navy, it's, it's different now. But uh, So I joined the Navy because I wanted to become a Navy SEAL. Um, I, the Navy requires you to have a specific job title. That's the way that you advance in the military, at least on the, on the enlisted side. Um, and the job, my, and my dad wanted me to focus on electronics because, you know, back then that was 26 years ago, 27 years ago, he thought that electronics are the way of the future. So I took a, a technical school that had a focus on electronics and pneumatics and hydraulics. And um, so I was uh, the job that I chose was called a gunner's mate. Um, and really the job of that, that job sounds kind of cool. You, you mess around with guns, but you don't actually hardly ever touch a gun. Uh, the guns that you would touch are the big, uh, they shoot like these five inch round projectiles um, or, uh, worked on missile launchers. So I, um, I, I went through the, the regular school that I could have graduated from that and then gone to buds. Uh, but I chose to take a second technical school, more technical school, um, for four months thinking I would get in better shape and then I would go to buds. Well, what I didn't know is after that, uh, four month school where I learned to work on uh, missile launchers for Tomahawk missiles, um, I owed the Navy 24 months of obligated service on a ship. Uh, at some point I was like, well, what if I fail out of the school? And they said, you know, they came back and said, that's fine. You will still go to that ship for 24 months. Uh, you just won't have this technical background. Um, so I went to, uh, I graduated. I went to Japan. I went around the world and really graduating that school almost uh, prevented me from going to BUDS because there's uh, the way the military works, or at least the Navy works is we have in, it was in DC back then. Now it's in, uh, in Millington, uh, Tennessee. Uh, there's a group of people who are all part of, you know, the different jobs, whether it's a corpsman or a gunner's mate or a yeoman or whatever these Navy jobs are. And they decide, you know, they look at the, the big picture of the military and where they need people um, that have certain job uh, expertise. Um, because the, the, the school that I went to was, was very critical. There were very few of us that had that qualification um, when it came time for me to transfer to somewhere else, you know, I called up my detailer and I said, Hey, um, I'm going to put a package in to go to buds. I'm just giving you a heads up. And he was very blunt and very clear and said, um, that's great, but I will not release you to go to buds. Your NAC is too critical. So I tried to play hardball and <laughs> came say, well, qualified. Right. Um, so I almost messed, you know, messed up, uh, well, I said, well, I'll just get out of the military if you if you don't let me go to Bud's because that's the reason I joined. He's like, that's fine. Get out of the military. He called my bluff. Um, so, you know, I talked to as many people as I could, went, you know, talked to the commanding officer of my ship. I talked to other SEALs that were in Japan. Um, 
And eventually, the, the chief of naval operations, who's the most senior guy in the Navy, the guy that's in charge of the entire Navy, uh, came to my ship in Japan. He didn't go to any other ship. He just happened to come to my ship. I probably would have gone to whatever ship he went to. But people said that, you know, if you ask him, he will probably let you go because he's done, you know, he's a very common sense kind of guy. And people have asked him, you know, about changes that didn't make sense. And he just made things happen. So he came to the ship. He had, you know, this was a whole big deal. He had the uh, admiral's call is what we called it. CNO call. Uh, does anyone have any questions? I raised my hand. They called on me. I said, I joined the Navy to, uh, to be a, a Navy SEAL. I think I deserve a chance to go, but my detailer will not let me go. I kind of threw my detailer under the bus a little bit. Um, and, uh, not in a bad way, but you know, I, but I think I deserve a chance to go. He's like, you're right. Well, first he turned to my, to, to the commanding officer. And I happened to, we have this, you know, kind of a award system for doing a good job. And, uh, he turned to my, uh, my commanding officer and said, so is he a good guy? And he's like, yeah, he's the, uh, he's the sailor of the quarter this quarter. Um, which is kind of a, a, a big deal in the, for a junior enlisted guy on a ship. Uh, he's like, okay, you'll be in the first class after your, your, your time on the ship is up. And, uh, after that event, the, the senior enlisted guy of the Navy, the most senior enlisted guy that works directly for the CNO came down. He said, uh, all right, you're on your way out. Um, the, uh, I tried it. It wasn't for me, but, uh, the hard part, the easy part's over. Good luck. And so that's the only way that I got to go to buzz is the top guy in the Navy said, you're going to go. That's so that amazing. Kind of cool. Think if you wouldn't have asked, right? I would. Yeah, I probably wouldn't be. We would probably not be having this conversation. Yeah, that, that's that's one of those lessons where you just sometimes just have to ask. Right. Um, yeah. I was, so I was not as 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 forward as I am now. I'm, I'm much more, uh, I guess, aggressive in my pursuit of of knowledge. People, but I wanted to be a seal, so you know, I. I just had to do it. So I was much shyer back then, I think. And so then you land in Buds. What was that experience like? So Buds um, back then, it's a little bit different now. It's still a, a selection process. Um, but Buds took me, so back then it was six months. Um, and it took me a, a, a very short 13 months to graduate because I didn't really prepare my body for what I was about to experience. Um, you know, some of it is that, uh, uh, how hard can it be? It's pretty hard actually. Um, but really my injury, I, I experienced a few injuries, some broken bones, leg, uh, broken ankle that still kind of, uh, haunts me today a, a bit. Um, I had stress fractures and those injuries almost got me kicked out of buds because, you know, their thought process and I fully understand it especially being on this side of it is if you didn't come here prepared, then this is not the place to prepare you. Um, so you need to go away and come back. And I told you the story about, you know, I only got to be here because the CNO said, make it happen. Um, that wasn't going to happen twice. So I, I, you know, the first guy that I talked to said, we're, you know, after my, my second time being kind of rolled back and starting the whole process all over, he's like, we're going to send you back to the fleet and you're going to, you know, 
you can come back in two years. And I stood out the second guy's outside the second guy's office and like, you know, wound crutches with tears coming down my face. And he's like, okay, go back and get in your class and you'll, you'll keep going. So, um, but, uh, so it took me a while to get through buds, but I made it. Um, but you know, buds is a, is a selection process that uh, a lot of people don't really think about. And they're not really looking for the most elite athletes. Um, I know I watched guys just, just crazy good swimmers and runners, and they could run the obstacle course with no problem. But, you know, when, when they were laying, you know, locked arms in the Pacific Ocean um, with that cold water just, you know, seeping into your core – they didn't want to do that anymore, or they didn't want to carry that boat on their head anymore. And so what, what I learned through buds was that, you know, we're not looking for the best athlete. We're looking for the guy who's going to stick it out when, um, when adversity really, really takes over. Um, because you know, there, there would be nights where I'm just laying there in the ocean and I'm like, okay, yeah, this really sucks. But, uh, you know what? it's not going to last more than an hour and in two hours I'll be in a hot shower and in my bed, um, ready for tomorrow. So, uh, go ahead. Let me stop you there for a second and, and ask a question because you and I become good friends and I'm, I'm good friends with another, uh, Canadian special forces member, uh, who actually recorded a show and we did a lot of, we talked a lot about uh, fear and, uh, physical response to fear and fear inoculation, which we'll touch on some today too. Um, but you and he are two of the, are, are probably the two toughest people I've ever met. And like you said, not the most physically imposing people that I know, but you know, as far as toughness and in situations and, um, it, you know, it, with both of you, I've seen some, some just incredible things. Do you think that's trained? Do you think, or do you think that there's a genetic predisposition to that. I mean, did you learn that in, in buds or did you go into buds with that already? Um, I think, I think maybe you, I think you kind of have a little bit of it built in maybe from, from childhood or maybe genetically, I'm not sure, but I certainly had to, learn to deal with some stuff. So I was kind of thinking about a a little bit about fear um, earlier and really, you know, I've seen people completely paralyzed by fear and that's, we'll we'll talk about fear a little bit in buds. I remember doing this, uh, this event in buds uh, called drown proofing. And it's where they, they tie your hands behind your back and your feet together, throw your mask in the pool. And then you're in, I think about 12 feet of water. And your job is to survive. So you bob up and down where you, it's a lot of breath work. Um, so you need to be very comfortable in the water. Um, so where you, you start off on the surface, you take a deep breath and you blow all of your air out so you can sink to the bottom and then push off the bottom so you can come back up, take a breath of air and then push it all back out. And you're doing that about 10 minutes. Uh, then they have you swim a hundred yards, still hands and feet tied, come back, bob up and down, go down, pick up your mask with your teeth, bob up and down, and then you're, and then you're done. And that's just a kind of a basic water, uh, comfort. 
uh, I remember when we were practicing for that, there was a guy right next to me. We practice where you're not tied up. You just hold your hands. Maybe we'll tie your feet and you hold your hands behind your back. And the guy got a little bit, he was an incredible athlete. He got a little bit of water, you know, kind of inhaled a little bit of water. Um, and he's, he started freaking out, get me out of here. I can't do this anymore. And I'm, and I want to say, just let go of your hands and grab the side of the pool, but it's not my place. I didn't want to get in trouble either. Um, but the instructor said, okay, we'll get you out. If you quit right now, he's like, I quit. I quit. Get me out of here. I quit. And the instructor said, okay, let your hands go and grab the side of the pool. And then he really felt dumb, but it was just kind of a, uh, an example to me of, you know, kind of get a hold of your fear. Cause I had the same thing happen to me during this event. You know, I, I aspirated a little bit of water, but I could freak out or I could kind of, you know, get my composure, get my breath, you know, blow it all out, suck it up, come back to the surface and kind of get my breath back under me, back control of my breath, and then continue on with the, with the evolution. So that was, that was just like a, go ahead. Do you have a process to deal with fear? You know, when you sense something coming on or you find yourself in that situation, do you have a breathing routine or, uh, a mental routine that you go through to stay present, uh, in, in heavy situations? I think, I mean, breathing for sure, you know, whether it's on land or in the water or whatever it is, get some, you know, get some oxygen to your brain, I think. Um, and, and really just try to slow down what's going on around you, assess the situation, do a quick risk assessment. What, what's the worst thing that could happen? Okay. Well, let's just avoid all the things that could lead down that road. And focus on, um, focus on how to get out of the situation. What's the, the most efficient way to get out of the situation? Although it's not going to be easy, let's just focus on, on figuring out what that is. And then, you know, take your mind away from whatever's causing the fear and focus on whatever the solution is. Because if you dwell in the fear, I think it, it will just consume you like a darkness um, but if you, you know, focus on, uh, where you want to go, you don't have time to really, uh, be engulfed by that, whatever that fear is, if that makes sense. Yeah. By the time you've gone through all the training, uh, that, that you go through with, with buds and then, you know, I don't know what other training that you have to go through, but by the time you are operational and in the field are most, uh, operators at that point uh, essentially inoculated from that fear? Do, do you ever have people shut down in, um, you know, in, in the field, in, in battle situations? Um, I've never seen anyone really shut down in combat, but I have seen people freak out in, in training scenarios. So the, the, the first team and the last team that I, that I was on in the teams was we, it's a seal delivery vehicle. So we have a, a mini submarine. It's not really small, but it's, you know, compared to like nuclear powered submarines, it's very small. It's a wet submersible. Uh, you have two guys in the front that drive, drive and navigate. And then we can put four guys in the back with whatever gear we're going to go do a mission with, um, guns, rucksacks, the whole thing. And really getting into that vehicle is like, let's just say you have a smart car, you fill it up with water, you black out all the windows, 
you put, you know, you and six of your best friends or five of your best friends in there and you're sitting on each other's laps with scuba gear and rucksacks and pretty much, and you absolutely cannot move. It's kind of like being, I think probably in a coffin filled with water and you're breathing off a regulator. And the only way that you can communicate with anyone is by a squeeze, if you can get a hold of them. And that's the only way you know whether you're okay or they're okay and that you can communicate for hours on end. And, you know, when you get in that vehicle and you shut the door and you can't move, fear starts setting in. Freak out ascitis comes along and uh, you just have to deal with it. Uh, get your bre- Again, get your breath under you. Know that you're going to be fine unless bad stuff happens. I mean, because bad stuff in that situation can happen very quickly, especially if you're not the person that's closest to the door who can open it up to like get out and get a little bit of, you know, get fresh air underwater. You still have to breathe off the same breathing medium, but you know, you know, something terrible, like your regulator could get pulled out of your mouth because your buddy moved a certain way. And now you don't have air anymore. And you have to figure out like where the other, the backup regulator is, or if you can get that one back in your mouth. Um, So there's, so I've seen people get into that vehicle, shut the door, and they are right back out of it. They absolutely cannot deal with you know being in a completely blacked out, confined space, wearing a lot of you know either wetsuit or dry suit with other breathing apparatuses, and you know it's a it's a complete loss of control where you have to just let things go, let things happen the way they're going to happen, and then deal with it, and then get your mind right. Um, I think that doing that for the first time is actually probably more scary than, than a lot of the combat that I've been in. Wow. That sounds incredibly heavy. It, it, it brings up, you know, uh, one of the notes that I have here about mental states in preparation for some of the heavier things that you would do combat or, or situation, you know, where you have a, you said a few hours there in such a tight confined space, how difficult is it to deal with that time? You know, and obviously I'm talking from a place where I've never done anything heavy like that, you know, but in things that are bring anxiety to me, generally leading up to that, whatever it is, event um, is more difficult than actually once it starts. Is it the same way for what you experienced? And if so, how do you, how do you process, how do you handle the time um, leading up to something as heavy as, as what you've done? Um, I think it depends what the situation is. Um, so for example, if, you know, we're in Iraq and we're going to go find, you know, a bad guy somewhere. Um, it, it depends what the kind of what the mission is. If it's a, if it's a, a mission where we, we built, the the package um where where we gathered the intel we put all the evidence together we have a uh, a high confidence of where the guy is going to be um that night you know there's some anxiety that kind of builds up to that how what's his security force look like what's the routes going in are they are they heavily ied'd um does he have a militia that generally guards him what are those factors? Um, and in, in those cases, some of the way to deal with that is just kind of through our training, through some of the, so we do a lot of iteration training um, to build 
a skill set. And then once we have a basic skill set, we do a lot of scenario based training. Um, and, and the goal in training is to give guys the worst case scenario, the absolute worst case scenario so that, you know, training is hard so that, you know, whatever you do in real life seems much easier. Um, and that's kind of the way that we prepare, but, you know, kind of the, the mental working up to that, there's no way to really prepare for getting into that coffin um, and, you know, potentially drowning, uh, with your buddy sitting in your lap. Um, there, you just have to like get your mind around it. Um, and once you get in there, figure out, like, figure out all your, all your worst case scenarios and then try to, you know, implement mitigating, you know, many mitigating factors to, to mitigate the risk. Um, when you're, you know, when we, roll on a target, whether it's in a vehicle or a helicopter or in a boat, a uh, surface vessel, um, you know, again, we, we apply those mitigating factors. Uh, we, we brief very, uh, very detailed, uh, with our plan is we go over the plan. We'll do uh, kind of dirt dive where we do kind of, a you know, maybe draw some, some buildings in the sand or put some, you know, pallets out to, to just so people can walk through the process of where they're going to go, how they're going to do things, how we're going to get out of the vehicle, um, what we're going to do on target that, you know, what you on target is very, um, dependent on, uh, what, what situations are presented to you at that time. Um, you know, going all the way down to what you're going to do, like, and how you're going to get back into your vehicle and the, the words that we're going to, the leadership is going to use on the radio and, and things like that so that there's no real so when when things do go badly um we know what um how to make things right again um and we we try to plan and mitigate uh for things happening if that makes sense it it does and you touched there on practice um and that's actually how you and I first communicated was, I think, shortly after the podcast I did with Anders Ericsson, and we were talking a little bit about deliberate practice. And you mentioned at that time how big of a, uh, you know, how big of a part of your world deliberate practice was. Um, can you touch a little bit on how important practice is for operation when you're in a situation so and, and i can explain this a little bit I, i'm and if you haven't listened to the anders erickson podcast that's a great one we talk a lot about how um through deliberate practice you can build an unconscious skill set so that you can then operate without um kind of self one your conscious mind being involved and as you apply stress you know as a coach coaching surfing one of the ways that I can tell if someone has internalized a skill is by raising pressure on whatever situation that is in we're in. So, you know, bigger surf or smaller board, and then watching what skills stick and what skills revert back to um, earlier uh, points. And you can tell, you know, what's been internalized, what's now operating at kind of an unconscious level. And so practice is the way in which you... are able to operate in heavier situations. And this ties into Mihai Csikszentmihalyi uh, and Kotler's research on flow. And I'm a believer that deliberate practice allows you to have deeper flow through having um, a, uh, a more like, talented or 
practiced uh, subconscious uh, mind. So maybe reflect on kind of that whole mind vomit there and how that, how, how that fits in with, with your practice and operation in heavy situations. So, yeah, so that Anders Ericsson podcast was one of the earlier ones that I listened to from you, which was part of, I think it was probably Anders and Josh Waitskin were the kind of the, some of the first ones that I listened to uh, that sort of got me into podcast listening um, and interested in what you had to say and other people had to say. And, um, but going back to deliberate practice, it, that really opened my eyes to, to what, what it all meant and, and, and helped me understand some stuff that we, that we do, we train to. Um, but, um, I, I didn't really understand the, the whole process of it until then. So I'll just talk about, so when you, I'll talk about uh, close quarters combat, um, okay. CQC. And that's basically when you go into a room, um, and you have to identify, um, what the danger areas are, whether there's people in there, are they, are there, is there furniture in there? Are there other doors? Are the doors open? Are the doors closed? Are the people, do they have guns? Are they showing aggression? Uh, are there women and children? Are there women and children with people with guns? Is there some sort of, uh, other, other, um, other danger that could be in the room that, that could affect you or your team. And we start out, you know, at the most basic level, because, you know, when we go do things, we go to places that we've never been before. And most likely people don't really want us in their house. Um, so we, we, we start off at, at the, you know, we break everything down to the most basic um, entry point, which is a, a square room with a center door with no furniture, no bad guys, no anything. And we learn how to walk through the door. First, how to look into the room from the outside and then how to walk into the room very deliberately. You don't run into a room. You know, we have this uh, the saying that said that's uh, uh, slow is smooth and smooth is fast. So you don't have to. And I've found it to be true in surfing. Also, um, you don't have to uh, run into a situation or, you know, grizzly bear your way into something to be quick or strong or better at something. Um, you know, we start off, we walk very deliberately, very slowly and look down in to the direction that we need to go as we're entering the room. We present our weapon the way we want it, where it needs to go. And then we go to our corner. So we, you know, kind of clear a room, you know, from the corners back to the center, to the corner and address the, the threats appropriately. Um, and then once everyone can do the, you know, a two man entry, then we'll into a center fed room and then we'll do four man entry into a center fed room. And when you're doing this, you know, there's muzzle discipline that you have to take into consideration. This is a very, it becomes a very uh, dangerous training scenario because you can easily shoot your buddy if you're not really paying attention. So you have to, or your buddy can shoot you. Um, and, and then we go from, you know, start adding, you know, shoot targets and non shoot targets. Um, you know, they're just cardboard targets that are in the room. They either have a weapon or they have like a cell phone or, a woman is holding a baby or like a dude with a rag on his head is holding a baby. Well, he's not a threat. He's just, you know, a dad. 
Um, so don't shoot him. Uh, and then, you know, address the situation, address the, the, the dangers. And then, you know, as we practice and practice and do more iteration, we are able to add more complex situations. Like in surfing, you can, um, you know, start off on just a very kind of crumbly, rolly, you know, knee high wave to learn to like, you know, enter the line, enter the wave and, and do a turn and kind of go down the line. Um, all the way up to doing, you know, you know, triple overhead barrels or whatever. You don't start at triple overhead. You start at, you know, kind of knee to waist high and then kind of crumbly wave. And then you go, you know, work, you know, build your skills at the, at the lower level and then work your way up into something more critical, uh, that requires more, um, mental acuity, more, um, more like addressing the situation a lot more uh, unconsciously. So, like I said, we start off with just two guys going into a room and, you know, end up with, you know, basically being able to flood a room. People are able to, without really like, um, slowing down and thinking like that's an open door, that's a closed door. I automatically am going to, to hold security on the open door because that's my biggest threat. Knowing that my buddy is going to be holding security on that piece of furniture until he can move around it to see if there's a, a threat behind it. So it's, you know, we, we go in very deliberately looking for um, very slowly addressing threats, um, learning what threats are, um, then picking up the pace. If the pace gets too, too fast, we'll pull, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll throttle back a little bit um, because guys are like dropping, you know, uh, danger areas that they should be holding security on, or, you know, they're missing, they're not hitting the target like they need to. All right, let's slow everything back down. Let's walk again. And then, so once we, we kind of, uh, uh, continue, continue that process and get better at the process, we can speed it back up again. And then you just start to see when you walk into, a, when I walk into a room now, I see like, what my danger, what my potential threats are, even, even now that I'm retired, um, and, and kind of think about how it, how I would address those. And it happens almost at an unconscious level. Like I, I am consciously, you know, looking at that threat because I think it's a threat, but you know, I've, I've already like, um, mitigated what the other potential threats could be. Let's talk about unwinding after some of the, the situations that you've been through. And I, I can lead off this by saying that there's an emotional roller coaster that I go through when we have big waves. Like, I'll see a forecast coming. There's a, a definite emotional charge that I get through seeing the forecast. I'm, like, as happy as I can be for a few days. The day comes, I've, you know, got all this energy for it. It's an amazing day or two or three or whatever it is. And then it's over and I don't want to get out of bed the next day. You know, it's just like, I don't know where that next ex hit of excitement is coming. Um, do you, did you feel those emotional roller coasters towards, um, towards your work? Did, does that reflect? Yeah. So it's, uh, sometimes, okay. um, for me, so there's, so there, I have been on deployments where we have been very busy and we've done a lot of work and the next deployment, we're prepared to do that same level of work, that same, you know, 
um, kind of excitement, that same uh, level of uh, intensity. And then we show up and we may only do a handful of like, you know, one of those like very intense uh, kind of operations. Um, and the rest of the time is either training uh, the local the local military to, to sort of take care of their own country. Um, or, you know, it becomes much more admin. And so you kind of get, uh, you, you do all this work to do a specific job. And, you know, you're looking at what the guys that are there that you're going to release, what they're doing. You're like, okay, it's on. It's, we're we're going to be busy again. And then you get there and the political climate changes completely. And, you know, as a leader, because I spent most of my career in the teams in, in some sort of leadership position, um, I have to manage my own expectation of what the cards that we were just dealt, um, as well as I have to start managing expectations of you know, the guys that are, you know, we're all pumped and we're all ready to go. Just like, you you know, you, you see that forecast and you're like, all right, it's going to be on. Um, and we're going to do the work that we've been training to do for the last year and a half. Um, and then we get there and it's just a completely, com- completely different climate. Um, you know, they want U.S. presence to stop being so kinetic. We want us, they want us to be much more, uh, administrative and sort of sit and drink tea with the local leaders and do things like that. And we're not really trained to drink tea. I can drink some tea, but I'm not really trained to drink tea. Um, so in, in that way, you know, we, there's this whole expect, you know, this whole anticipation. And then it's six months of like not really doing the job that you want to do, that you trained to do, that you showed up to do. Um, but, you know, so in, in kind of in that way, you know, I have to deal with my own kind of, uh, I don't want to call it depression, but it, it is, there is a depressive state that sort of takes place. So I have to deal with my own and then I have to go out and, and also simultaneously help manage the, the state of, of the guys that are working for me. We were all fired up and ready to, you know, to do work. Um, but then we're, we're handed, uh, well, sorry, you don't get to do that work this time. Um, so, yeah. How do you do that? How do you manage your own state? And then as a leader, how did you help manage your team state? I think that's a good question. Um, I, yeah, really good question. I don't know. I just kind of a lot of probably a lot of self-talk. Um, started putting my energy into maybe working out more or setting goals setting goals of like, okay, I want to, you know, I want to deadlift 500 pounds by the end of this deployment or bench press 225 for 20 or something like that. I can't do either one of those, but those are just like, you know, or maybe, you know, 315 for whatever, uh, or, you know, be able to carry, you know, these kettlebells and drag a tire behind me, you know, and go around the, the perimeter of our compound twice, you know, just, you know, weird goals, you know, and, and also try to, uh, encourage guys to have some sort of goals that they want to. So really physical, because I feel like physical helps to um, helps the mental uh, in a lot of ways. 
to, you know, you know, don't get, you know, don't get depressed on this, you know, the situation that we're in right now. Um, because as soon as we stop, you take your eye off the ball and you start focusing on something uh, negative, you know, we're going to need you to be primed and ready to go. So keeping, keeping the prize in sight, but it's setting, you know, kind of small goals along the way to, uh, to kind of keep your, keep our minds focused on, on staying, staying sharp and, you know, prepared for when we do get to go out or when we do need to go out and, and do the different kind of work. Because bad things happen when you when you become complacent, I believe, and I've seen it. You know, we could be doing like an, an administrative, uh, call it a milk run. You know, that's we're going to drive over to, you know, the local leader, the local Iraqi leader's house to to have tea or have a meeting, and we get hit with an IED on the way. So we weren't really thinking. We don't like to drive in the daytime, first of all, but you know, we're we're handed those cards and we have to. So. You know, we, we do the things that we need to to mitigate danger. We try to stay as sharp as we can. We set many goals and, and always try to keep uh, keep the prize of what our job is and what we want to accomplish in sight. And then uh, my job as a leader is to continue to, like, remind myself and to remind my guys the same thing. So having recently retired – has it been easier to leave the work or harder to leave the work or easier or harder to leave the team and the camaraderie? Cause I assume it's a massive change both in who you're around and that tight knit group. And then also in just the excitement of the work. Yeah. So, so fortunately, fortunately and unfortunately the, the military, the Navy takes us in and out of those tight knit groups uh, because of what, what the needs of the Navy are, what the needs of Naval Special Warfare are. Um, so I will do, uh, you know, a workup and a deployment with a group of guys and maybe I'll get to do two. But then I have to go do like an administrative job somewhere um, where I don't get to do all the fun stuff. Or maybe I'm, I'm, I'm teaching sniper school or maybe I'm, you know, I'm, but I'm out of the, the, the mix. So there's it's not uncommon to be in it and then be taken out of it. And then what you do when you're out of it is always try to prepare to get back into it um, or do something that is going to benefit me once I get back into it. Um, and I guess kind of fortunately my last, my very last job, my last three years, I was a much more administrative um, in the finding solutions for problems that, that we had as a, as a team and as a community. So if it was a technology problem, I would go find the technology and the funding to, to uh, kind of solve those problems. So I was still part of the team. I was just doing it from the outside, not from the inside. So, but it was, it, it is uh, certainly a, a very uh, bit of a culture shift, um, not being a part of that organization anymore. Um, as a matter of fact, so I had a Blackberry that, you know, I got all my work email on and whatever. And I didn't, I wasn't really, and I, I gave my Blackberry up the day before uh, I retired. So 31 July was my last day in the Navy. Um, I gave my Blackberry up 30 July and I probably could have kept it another day or two <laughs> and they would not have minded, but I would, you know, I had a really hard time letting go. <laughs> 
Um, that's a great segue into what you're doing now. Do you want to explain uh, what Nalu Strategic Solutions is and your new role? And also, let's dive into the, the last couple of years in the Navy. And you and I have talked about this, but you just briefly mentioned it about the uh, finding, development, design for solutions for your teams. I think that's fascinating. So, yeah, so, so I, I started a consulting firm, NALU Strategic Solutions. NALU is, uh, trying to think of something that was kind of catchy and, and easy, hard to forget or easy to remember if you heard it again. Um, NALU is Hawaiian for wave or surf. So I thought that was appropriate for me because I like, uh, I like surfing and I love the ocean. Um, and then strategic solutions, um, I will be I will be finishing up my my master's in strategic leadership um, in in December, so I'm I'm pretty happy about that. Uh, but you know, my last three years was a lot of we have a system called the Operational Deficiency Report or the ODR system, and what that is is at the team level, if we run into a, like some sort of problem, whether it's a technology problem or a, a tactics, techniques, and procedure problem or uh, some sort of other problem that we we don't have a solution in our hand. And, and there may or may not be a, a commercial office self-solution um, out, in, out in the world. We write an ODR. It goes and it gets uh, validated, approved and validated all the way up the chain of command to the, the uh, to the admiral who's the overall, the guy that's overall in charge of all the SEAL teams. And um, so at, at my last job, the ODR would start its process of going up and I would, I would take it and I would start looking for technology solutions. I would go find uh, companies that maybe had that technology or start working with academia to start trying to find solutions for that technology um, or that deficiency. Um, and then the other piece of that is, you know, contrary to popular belief, even within, within our community, we don't have funding to do research and development or science and technology. Uh, we don't have the authorities nor the funding. We only have the authorities to go and do the work that we're told to go do. Um, so I, I had to go learn about, um, you know, funding sources and who can provide funding and, can a company provide funding for us? What government organizations? So I, I learned how to connect um, academia, uh, different funding organizations, organizations that are chartered to provide funding, um, how to acquire that funding, uh, and you know connect all of those people with uh, the end user. So a lot of what I'm doing now is um, I'm kind of building a team of teams or a network of networks to uh, find solutions for the end user uh, through different funding strategies and uh, different technologies. You know, it depends what technology deficiency is out there. And, and I have used my I'm using my my network uh, and growing my network to to help um, to help solve these problems that that. Uh, the military has, and I'm I'm starting to branch out into other organizations, who have, uh, you know, you know, I'm, I'm able to come in and, and look at uh, look at a company from a different perspective. So I can I can look at a company, and um, you know, I'm not there to tell the, the the CEO that he's right, 
I'm there to just give a different perspective of maybe a direction uh, that the company may need to go or or uh, just a different way to, to solve a problem. So I'm, I'm really, I really enjoy problem solving. And uh, so I'm hoping to continue to make a, make a, uh, a career out of problem solving now, just, you know, looking at it from, you know, from a different perspective, I'm a complete outsider. You give me enough information to understand your company and the direction that you want to go and the problems that you're having. And I can help, help uh, bring things in from, from a little bit of a different perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, what what do you think that that perspective difference is coming with your background? I, I some of it's personality, um, you know. But we've, you know, even in the military, we do things as as seals. We do things a bit more unconventional, um, and I sometimes just uh, if I see everyone doing something the same. I don't want to do it like that. I don't want to be like everyone else. I want to do it differently. Um, or I want to find a more efficient way because I, I, I see, I see problems or I see inefficiencies in, in what you're doing. So, um, as, as special forces, we, our goal is to be as efficient and as, you know, as quick and deadly as possible. Um, and, you know, we want to, we don't, so conventional military, they go in and they like hold, hold land. We don't do that. We go in, we hit a target and we get out. We don't, we don't hold land. We don't, uh, you know, we don't want to do that. We, that's a very conventional mindset. Um, our mindset is, you know, strike hard, strike fast, and then get out and, and prepare for the next, uh, the next thing that we need to do. So it, it's just a different mindset of, you know, businesses, they want to go in and kind of control an area. Well, maybe, maybe they do, or maybe they, the way to get into that is they need to look at it, you know, attack it from a different, uh, a different angle, you know, um, rather than just trying to hit it, you know, straight on like a, you know, like a gorilla, you know, kind of <laughs> hit it through the side door. Right. Hey, look over here. And then, you know, hit them from the side. Is, has there been an emotional baggage that has come with um, the work? Um, I think there's probably emotional baggage that comes with all with all work. Um, yeah, there certainly is. There's there's personalities and there's um, you know there's there's lots of personalities out there. And, uh, you just have to deal with those personalities, uh, as, as they come at you. Uh, sometimes they mean well, and sometimes they don't mean well. So, um, yeah, it happens. Yeah. I think it, I think it happens in all, in all walks of life. Yeah. Do you think that, um, the love of surfing has anything to do with the high pace? First, do you, do you, do you define yourself as an adrenaline junkie? Um, I don't think so. Uh, some other people may, <laughs> but I, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't know if I've ever seen your adrenaline spike. <laughs> um, do, does surfing fill any, any holes that the work has, has left? Did you love surfing? When, let's talk about your path in surfing a little bit. Um, when did you first start surfing and 
you know, what, what I, place does that fit in your life now? So I think my first exposure to surfing was when I was in Buds. There was a guy who talked about surfing. I was not interested in surfing at all um, back then. But he, you know, talked about, you know, it doesn't matter how bad your day is. You know, at the end of the day, you just grab your board, you go out and get in the water. And, you know, by the end of the surf session, you are, you know, everything is good. Like your life is good. Your mental state is good. Everything is good. And I was like, that's weird. I don't have any of those problems. I don't ever really get upset about anything. But as I've, uh, you know, gotten older, you know, more life experiences. That guy did not make it through Buds, by the way, but he was a great guy um, <laughs> and and a great athlete. Uh, he just didn't like the cold water, even though he grew up in Southern California in the ocean. Um, yeah. As I've gotten older, I have experienced a lot more stress of life. Um, and I could probably meditate more or do things like that. But, um, what I found is my, where I started surfing was, you know, I moved to Hawaii and, or when we got, you know, I was told I was going to move to Hawaii. I'm like, well, they have waves out there. I should probably start, you know, learn to surf. And, uh, so I got a surfboard and I got a stand up paddleboard and, um, and I, and I started, it was about five years ago, but I started on, you know, really junk waves and on a 10 foot by 32 and a half wide board. And I thought I was really good until I went to, to the North shore of uh, Lonnie's one day. And I got, uh, I kind of got it handed to me, but since then, you know, I've, I've kind of gone down this road of, of, uh, of really loving surfing. And my wife was amazing at where she always supported me. Um, my second wife supported me through, um, you, you need to go surf, go surf. You, I understand the kind of stress of, of work that you're under, you know, go out there and, and, and do it. And, you know, what it always did for me a hundred percent of the time, there's no fail, um, is, you know, going out in the ocean and, and being, you know, you may, there may be a bunch of people around, but really surfing is kind of an individual sport, even though sometimes you're competing for waves. Um, you know, it's completely, it completely cleanses my whole mental attitude. I could go, you know, show up and just be like, I can't believe how jacked up these people are or what they're doing or how, what, what is going on and just be in kind of a, just a, a not a really great place. Um, and, and I go surf and when I get out of the water, I'm completely cleansed of, I come out with a, as a completely different person different attitude that seems kind of wooey, but, uh, you know, it, it certainly is, is, has been something that has greatly, greatly enhanced my mental fitness or mental health, mental well-being. Um, you know, it doesn't matter how bad things are, uh, coming, coming, going surfing and getting out of the ocean. Uh, even if it was a bad surf session, who cares? Um, or if I just got destroyed out there, I, it, it, it was a physical act. It was a meditative act. It was a calming act that, you know, took me out of whatever nonsense that doesn't really matter in the, in the long run, uh, that put me into like a bad, you know, uh, mental place. I go, I surf, I come back and I'm, I feel amazing. So Josh Waitskin on the podcast that we did, and you know Josh is a dear friend, 
but he, he describes surfing as, you know, he says that he spent his whole life in combat sports. So chess being a mental combat sport and then martial arts, uh, Tai Chi push hands and then Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. And, you know, surfing for him is about receptivity and, it sounds like it seems like there's a similar path to you there too, to where it's very different from what you've spent a lot of your time doing. Yes, I, I would agree with that. And I've listened to I've listened to the the podcast a couple times with Josh and and uh, and I and I agree with almost everything that he says. Although he does use big words, and I'm like, what are you saying? And I have to listen to it a couple times. <laughs> Because he gets excited and he has his own kind of vocabulary, and I have to like, what is he saying again? And I have to kind of rewind it. But yeah, that's maybe, uh... maybe I'll get to spend some more time with with Josh, uh, you know, in Costa Rica or at some point. Um, that's when I challenge of... him to a to a surf contest. <laughs> that's one of my favorite things about being Josh's friend and, and hanging out is that like we'll have some conversation about something, and then a week or two later. I'll think about something he said and I'm like, Oh, wait a second. Now I get what he means. You know, and there's right. like some, some deep lesson in there that I completely just surf saw it on the surface at the beginning. Um, which always, always catches me when, when, when those things happen. Um, right. So moving forward, uh, where do you see yourself in five years from now? Um, I'd say in five years, I would like to have, I'd like to have my company uh, successful enough to give um, kind of a, a, a soft landing for veterans who are uh, the right the right guys because they're doing kind of specialized work. But you know, for the right guys coming out of the military, give them kind of a soft landing. Uh, let it see if this kind of kind of work is something that they would be interested in, or you know, it at least gives them a, a place to land while they looked for what they, what they want to do, um, you know, when they have to get the grown up job, cause I, I don't want a grown up job. I want to, you know, keep, uh, I want to keep doing the job that I want to do. Um, and, and be happy. I don't want to be, I've been offered jobs in cubicles for some, some decent money, certainly that will pay the bills, but, uh, you know, I don't want a cubicle job. I want to continue doing, I want to continue helping people. I want to continue. Uh, I want to continue surfing. Uh, I want to continue having a, a, a lifestyle that is, um, yeah, is is that helps people and helps me. Because if I'm not taking care of me, no one else is. So, um, so I, I just I I hope to have uh, you know three or four trips a year to Costa Rica. Um, you know, be able to, uh, to afford that, uh, give back to people, you know, have, a uh, deeper relationship with my family, um, and with my friends. And, uh, yeah, I think that's where I, I'd like to be in, in five years. I feel like that's very, uh, attainable. You'll, you'll exceed those, those, those goals. I'm, I'm sure. Um, all right, let's do a couple quick questions here. Some things that, uh, that will probably be interesting. A couple hacks that you learned through being a seal that you use in your everyday life now. Oh, um, or, 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 or you could also couple that with, uh, diet, eating habits, anything out of the ordinary that through your time and 
that you habits you've picked up along the way you that you're surprised um, most people don't do i would say um one of the hardest things uh to do really is and you know i learned this long ago and keep relearning it is just uh keep it simple you know there's especially in today's the society of technology and smartphones and computers and apps and whatever, you know, people don't look up, people don't look around, um, you know, and we make things more complicated than what they need to be. Uh, if we, you know, and this falls back to, you know, some of the risk mitigation that, that we would do for an operation or for a, you know, a free fall jump or whatever, you know, keep it simple. That's not, uh, let's not make things complicated because, and, and this was something I wanted to kind of mention earlier and forgot to, you know, when we, at some point, a few, several years ago, probably 15 years ago, we, we kind of revamped the way that we were doing CQC. Uh, someone went out and did a study on uh, a, a college team, I think in Georgia. And these guys were amazing a hundred percent of the time. And what they learned is that the, the, this football team, when the guys, when the kids were like in Pop Warner and just, you know, just little guys running, bull bobbleheads running around on the field, they ran the same plays from the time, <clears throat> excuse me, from the time that they were, you know, uh, five, six, eight years old, all the way until through high school uh, and on into college. <clears throat> the kids did the exact same plays every time. So no matter what happened during the play, they there were never any surprises. They always knew what was going to happen. They never overcomplicated it. So they just kept things simple. You know, if you keep things, you know, down to you know, down to three, down to three uh, decisions that you can make. Let's not make ten decisions and make things more complicated. Let's just keep life simple and 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 uh, and life just easier that way. So when adversity does come our way, we, we know how to handle it. Um, and then it's easy to reset on three things versus 10 or 15 things. Do you have an example of how um, you use that in your, in your daily life? Um, I fail a lot. Um, I really, I find myself, I overwhelm myself sometimes. And then once I get overwhelmed, I realize, oh, what am I doing? Let's just don't do the things that don't matter. Do the things that matter. And once those are done, um, then you can work on the things that don't matter. Uh, but oftentimes I'll just get overwhelmed with like a bunch of stuff and information and whatever and not focus on the things that matter until it's it's not too late, but until I just am uh, I'm feeling overwhelmed and then I realize, what am I doing? Throttle it back. Let's focus, let's, all right, make a list, write down the things that matter work on those. And then whatever time is left over, you can apply that to the things that don't really matter as much or prioritize things. Um, yeah, you know, when I was uh, running the company that I used to run in um, Nassar in Costa Rica, I had a very similar rule to that. And I feel like only about 20% of what you do is worth doing at a hundred percent level. And that'll take up at least 80% of your time. So it's kind of like my reverse 80-20 rule to where right. I think that if you can focus on the things that need to be great and you do those at a great level and everything else you can do at a 20% level essentially and because you just have to slog it out and it probably doesn't mean much. 
Uh, and that's actually like a, I hate doing dishes. I hate making beds. I hate doing anything that's not in line with what my big objective is. So Sarah and I right. get on it about that every once in a while. <laughs> but, uh, but I explained to her the other day, it's like, you know, one day you're, you're not going to make it through the day. And I'd much rather have done all the fun stuff and still have all the bullshit that I don't want to do left rather than have right. done all the bullshit and not done my fun stuff. And by yeah, fun, inter- it, you know, you can, you can throw in there, uh, for fun, like the important things, you know? Um, and it was tough to argue with that one. I think I, I don't win many, many arguments or discussions, but I think I won that <laughs> one. <laughs> oh man, this has been a great catching up. Is there anything that you want to, uh, to leave folks with William? Um, first off, how, how well, do people find it. you? How do people find you? How um, do people explore what you're doing now? So I have a, I have an Instagram, you know, being, being a seal, I was anti social media and I'm still, I'm, I'm trying to get over that stigma because you don't get to kind of sell yourself or anything, uh, about you, let people know about you unless you have that kind of presence. Um, I do have an Instagram, um, it's Nalu underscore strategic underscore solutions, uh, with the S at the end. Um, and, uh, my, my email would be, uh, Nalu strategic solutions at Gmail. Um, that would be the, the, the work email I'm using right now. I have a website, but I have not put the effort into actually getting it up and running. Um, I have the domain, the domain, domain name of Nalu strategic solutions, but, uh, you're not going to find much on there yet. So, um, and what type of, what type of request should people reach out to you for people looking for, um, you know, I'm, I'm always looking for customers. I'm looking for business. I'm looking for people to assist, uh, to help out. Um, there's, you know, whether it's, you know, helping out with your company or, you know, I, any kind of, uh, leadership, uh, guidance or training that, that you'd like to, uh, to have, I can certainly, uh, we have some curriculum for that, uh, to help, to help out, um, and I can Maybe speak him, keynote speaking, and like I can that. speak from experience here. William, um, after we had known each other for a little while, came down to a retreat that I was running in Costa Rica, and um, your leadership skills and the way that you work with groups and what you bring as far as teaching lessons uh, added a whole lot to that week, and I think it would add tremendously to any organization just just the presence there's there's something i find um in being around certain people just elevates uh groups or people and you know you're one of those folks william who you know, when you're in a group i think the group does better um and i've seen that so uh, i think it's very really kind cool. of you to say yeah 100 percent from the heart awesome um, all right. Well, thank you so much for the time. Uh, truly appreciate it. I hope everyone uh, just gets a little window into to what you've accomplished. And thank you for your service, for everything you've done for, oh, thank uh, you. for all of us. Sure. Yeah, this was uh, this was fun. I appreciate I appreciate you having me on the show. The Progressive Project.